So, a recap of the letter to the Ephesian Christians. Remember, this is a letter that Paul wrote. Likely, he's imprisoned in Rome, having been charged by some of his Jewish enemies of preaching things that violated Roman law. So he's a Roman citizen, so he's under house arrest. In, in my view, and this is disputed, but I think a consensus view, in my opinion, is that at the very end of the book of Acts, where he's been imprisoned in Rome, is likely where he's writing a lot of these letters to churches that he has started, to churches that, from his various missionary journeys. So he writes this letter to the Christians in Ephesus and by extension through the whole area of modern day Turkey. And so he begins, if you remember, the first three chapters are kind of theology, but they're really a reminder of who you are now in Christ. He starts and he says that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms by God. He said, God chose you before the foundation of the world. Jesus, the Messiah, redeemed you, brought, bought you back from slavery, and the Holy Spirit is sanctifying us. And so the work of God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, in making us who we are now. We, in chapter two, you get the fun little passage there where it says, we used to be dead in our sins and trespasses, but God, because of his great mercy, and he just out of his love for us, made us alive with Christ. By grace, by God's favor, you have been rescued or saved through trusting in Christ, through faith, because of what Jesus Christ has done. And so you get this beautiful image of what God has done for us and who we now are. Chapter four, uh, well, and chapter numbers obviously weren't in this originally, but about halfway through this letter, there's a turn and he says, given that all of that is true, that that is now who you are, what difference then does that make for your life? And so chapter four, verse one, on the left side of this slide, Paul says, I'm a prisoner for the Lord and I urge you, meaning you really, really need to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. In other words, given that everything I just said is true, you need to live like that's true. That's really what he's basically saying. Live like that's true. That's who you are. So he goes into the, the next really three chapters. The, the rest of the letter is about given that that's who you are, what does it look like to live the Christian life? We talked about an ancient Greek myth and I just use this to illustrate this, the myth of Sisyphus. And Sisyphus was destined to carry a big stone or roll a big stone up to the top of a mountain and every time he got to the top, it would roll back down. And he would walk back down and he would do it again. And so this was a myth. And so my point was, sometimes that can be what the Christian life feels like, is I'm trying, 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 but I never quite am successful. Or if I am, I'm not successful for very long. And then I sin again and I fall you know, back on what I'm trying to do. And so we talked about religion and moralism. Religion you know, leads to this moralistic idea of I obey God's rules so that he will accept me. Now no one thinks that, no one 
would just say, yeah, that's my theology. That's the way I read the New Testament. But that's how we approach sometimes the Christian life. Whereas the gospel leads to transformation. It's not behavioral primarily. It's transformational. And it says, I have been accepted. I have been loved. I have been redeemed and chosen and saved by God. Therefore, I follow Christ. I obey. I willingly obey. I'm not trying to earn anything. Christ already did all the work that was required. And so we talked about living the Christian life, and we went through a lot of chapter 4 and some of chapter 5, and he's really talking about this fundamental idea, is don't get things backwards here. Don't think the Christian life is a bunch of rules. Are we going to obey? Of course. Jesus said five times, in uh, John 14 and 15, if you love me, then do what I tell you. And he says, the ones who do what I say are the ones who actually love me. In other words, they, God doesn't separate love and obedience. I mean, if you love God, then of course, I want to follow you, I want to be like you. So that's the idea, is we talked about leaving religion and the moralistic ideas behind and move and understand the gospel as a heart transformation as a change of direction. So he's gonna go on then, and he's going to leave the realm. Chapter four and, and uh, some of chapter five are talking about what does it look like for me to live the Christian life? And so that's my summary of this. We, we talked about more than that, but that's my summary. That has to do with me living a Christian life given who I now am. Now, in the next couple of lessons, he's gonna turn and he's going to say, but there are also implications for how you live with each other. It's not like this uh, monkish or monastic existence of I became a Christian and it's just all about me and God. Well, it's not just all about you and God. It's not all just vertical, it's also horizontal. And so God has incorporated the idea of as John says in the letter of 1 John, if a man says, I love God, but hates his brother, he's a liar. In other words, the vertical relationship affects the horizontal. That's where he's going to go. And the way he approaches it is he's writing a letter. He's not writing a treatise. He's not writing a book. He's not gonna talk about every relationship you possibly could have. Mother-in-laws are not mentioned in this letter at all. So I'm just saying he's not gonna talk about every circumstance, but he's going to talk about some of the most contentious circumstances in their culture. Some of the circumstances and relationships that are going to be transformed the most. So he's just gonna talk about three relationships and I'm only gonna focus on one. So in, in uh, Ephesians 5.15, he kind of sums up the, the, my walk with Christ. He says, look carefully then how you live, how you walk. Don't be unwise, but be wise. Make the best use of your time because the days are evil. It was true 2,000 years ago, it's true today. Therefore, don't be foolish, but try to understand what the will of the Lord is. In other words, if you're following God, try to understand what, what's he doing in the world? What am I to be about in the world? It says, don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. I'm gonna show you a, a slide and I'm gonna break this down grammatically, but that is a key, that is the key command in this whole section. 
Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now we're gonna to get to horizontal relationships. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So I wanna talk about a couple of things here before we jump into, because all I really wanna talk about is uh, wives and husbands, gender roles in general. But I want to set this up right, I wanna to talk to you about this word, this idea of submitting to one another. That is not a, a very good word. There's only one word worse than submit in the English language, and it is obey. So, we don't like either one of them. These are two very different Greek words. They're different English words as well. But obey is not something that you have a say in. Something you're supposed to obey is obey or else. Okay, submit, and I wanna translate this, and, and many translations do, submit yourself is voluntary. Obedience is not voluntary. It's coercive, right? If you don't obey the law, they will put you in jail. So that's not, I mean, I guess you could say it's optional, but it's not really, it's coercive. In other words, if you do not obey the law, you will get put in jail. Submit yourself says, this is something I want you to do willingly. This begins here, not outside. Obedience begins outside of me by an authority figure. And we all obey, it's not, a, it's not a bad word. I just wanna draw the distinction between the words. We all obey all the time. We obey any number of rules and laws and so forth. Sometimes we obey because we don't wanna get in trouble. Sometimes we obey because we know it's good for the public welfare. You know, so there are many reasons for obedience and obedience in and of itself isn't a bad thing. But that's not what this is talking about. It's going to be next week we're gonna talk about obedience. But this is talking about the willing subordination of yourself to one another. Submitting yourself to one another out of reverence for Christ. So point number one, this is something that initiates in my will not in someone else's will, okay? That's just the difference in what the words mean. We'll apply it in a minute, but you need to understand the difference in these two words. Second thing, submitting myself to someone else, since it's a voluntary act, that's easy for me to do if they are worthy. Does that make sense? In other words, it's very easy to submit yourself to someone you really look up to and you say, I wanna help you as much as I can and I'm going to, you know, what can I do to help you? I'm happy to help you, I believe in what you're doing. Here I'm gonna write a check to the American Heart Association because I believe in what you're doing. You're submitting yourself in some way uh, voluntarily because you think they're worthy. That is not the basis for this command, is it? And that's really different. Submitting yourself out of reverence for Christ removes the reason for this self-decided submission. I can do it, I can not do it. It removes it from the worth of the individual to my fear, the word's technically fear, but reverence is a good translation here. My reverence for Christ. 
In other words, my horizontal relationship with Christ is the basis for submitting myself to you, not your worth. That is, everything, I, everything in this passage is so countercultural, but I want to point that out because it's going to come up again. Okay? So, obedience and submitting yourself, two very different things. One's external, one's internal. Submit yourself out of reverence for Christ. The reason for submission has nothing to do with the worth of the individual. And then finally, the idea is this is something that we do to one another. Who is the one another here? Well, I mean, this is basic understanding of the Bible or anything. This is the one another is your fellow Christ followers. Right? That's who this is written to. Sometimes, and I don't want to make a big point out of this, but I, I just want to point this out because sometimes we miss this and we think, oh, we're supposed to submit ourselves to everybody in the world. Now, I mean, you can, I guess, but that's not what this is talking about. This is written to fellow Christ followers. We're modeling a new life and a new community of transformed people. That's to whom this command is given. So, this piece is what I kind of want to really focus on is this, this basis, filled, being filled with the Spirit and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So here's the very next passage. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, this is all that voluntary submission word. There's no, it does, they don't translate it obey because that's not what's here. Uh, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, as in he died, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives like their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. So that's the passage that I want to camp out on, and I want to use it to leverage into the idea, and, the, and the, it's gotten to be a lot of ideas, about gender roles. But first, why is the Bible talking about this at all? I mean, have you ever stopped to think about why does God care? He could have just said, okay, as far as marriage goes, you guys just do whatever your culture does, right? Polygamy? Fine. Polyandry, fine. Uh, you know, if you if here it's women are in charge, fine. Men are in charge, fine. I don't really care. I care about your souls. I don't care about your marriages. Fair enough. I mean, be good. Have said that. And he said, just do whatever your culture does. But he doesn't. So then you have to ask yourself, well, then why? Why does God care what the structure of your marriage is? And this goes beyond marriage, but this passage is talking about marriage. You can extend this out because it talks about submitting yourself willingly to one another. So, so why? And here's, here's the idea that I think we need to understand, and we'll see this when we go back to gender roles from the very beginning. But God is interested in developing peace and harmony, not power. Cultural relationships 
in general and cultural marriages in general are power relationships. So think about, think about the idea of control, control of your assets, control of your children. I, I really want you to think about it. I know it's a little philosophical, but you really got to get this because God's agenda is so different than this. But the cultural basis for marriage, I know you want to say it's all about love. It's nothing about love, culturally speaking, right? No, it's just not. I know in America we say, well, you can marry anybody you want. True. You can marry anybody you love. That's true. And guess what? It's still all about control. It's about our marriage laws are designed around controlling property, controlling security for the individuals, controlling the children. And I'm not talking about prenups. I'm not talking about a contracted marriage. I'm just talking about our laws about marriage. Marriage is typically about control. And it's that kind of relationships about control. That's not what God is interested in. God is interested in peace and harmony. Think about the Garden of Eden for a second. Before the fall of humanity, what do you have? Perfect marriage. You have peace with God. You have transparency with God. I mean, they're naked and they don't care. This is the whole point of this is we are completely transparent to one another and we're transparent to God. After the fall, what happens? Cursed is the ground because of you. Cursed will be the pain in childbirth. Your desire will be for your husband, but he will dominate you. Whoa, we got big differences here before and after, don't we? You know what comes in afterwards? Control issues. And you know who started it? Adam. Eve bought the apple on sale. I admit that to you. <laughs> but who started the control thing? Adam. God comes and says, what happened? It's her fault. And you gave her to me. And that's all I have to say on the matter. Okay, from then on, constant arguments. I mean, how do you think that was going to go in the car on the way home? Adam, what are you thinking? You know, but you get my point. You've got control issues in fallen humanity. That's not what you had in the Garden of Eden. Nobody's, Adam and Eve aren't trying to one-up each other and they're not, they're not competing with one another. What do you see after the fall? Cain and Abel, competition. Immediately, power, wrestling. Power is the fundamental basis for cultural relationships, but it's not God's, it's peace. So God is interested in your marriage. He's interested in the church, by the way, for the same reasons, but this text is about marriage, so we'll talk about marriage. To, to bring us back to peace, to bring harmony back to humanity. If a male and female Christ follower who love one another and get married, that is God's plan for remodeling peace. Does that make sense? So he's not interested in power, he's interested in peace. That's why this is here. Because God is interested in altering every single cultural relationship that is based on power. When we talk about social justice next week, which is four verses down from this, that's still going to be the underlying theme. Does that make sense? He's interested in peace and harmony and human thriving, not in power. And so transforming the most intimate relationship you and I know, marriages, is right in the middle of God's wheelhouse. 
All right. Jesus is the perfect example of this. Now, only Jesus could say this first part. So he's talking to his disciples. Everybody's trying to kill him. Of course, they're going to crucify him. He says, no one takes my life from me. I can't say that. You can't say that. There are people who are strong enough to come take our life from us, to kill us. Jesus had enough power that no one could kill him. You understand what I'm saying? This is the son of God. He could actually say that you and I can't, but we can both say the second part. He says, no one takes my life from me. I lay my life down. What does that sound like? Submit yourself to a greater good. Submit yourself for the sake of redeeming humanity. In other words, this idea, this modeling here is emulating Christ. Obviously, with the husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church in a literally self-sacrificial way. But wives, submit yourselves to your husband. Both of those things are exactly what Christ did. Does that make sense? This is bringing Christ into your most intimate relationship and displacing power and control from that relationship. So I wanna analyze this passage a little because there's just a lot of bad teaching around this. And so I'm not gonna rebut it particularly. I just wanna tell you what the text says. This is an outline of the text. It says, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise but wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't get drunk on wine. A lot of imperatives in there, a lot of commands. Here's the last command. But instead, meaning don't do all that stuff. Instead, I want you to be filled with the Spirit. Now, you may be saying to yourself, what does it mean, Paul, to be filled with the Spirit? He said, I'm glad you asked. That's why God created participles. Participles are little grammar, I-N-G words, and look at the string. Every one of these is explaining what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs singing and making melody. I mean, in the Greek language, this is, this, this is the outline. There's a command, and then there's all these explainers. Uh, giving thanks, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So that's not an exclusive list of what it means to be filled with the Spirit, but he says, don't be foolish, don't get drunk. Instead, fill yourself up with the Spirit of God. What does that mean? Well, you could be singing psalms and hymns and songs. You can be giving thanks to the Lord. Oh, did I mention you could be willingly submitting yourself to one another? That makes sense? Okay, one more level. Underneath this come all of these, all from this one command. This is what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. He talked about what it looks like to be spirit led life with God in chapter four and part of five. Now he turns, he said, here's what it looks like to be spirit uh, led life when it comes to dealing with each other. There's not even a verb in this next piece. The English translations say, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. That's good. It's not a bad translation at all, but it's not there. It says submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. For example, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. Then it goes back and, and uh, just rhetorically, 
It's still, still here. What does it look like to submit to one another? Husband, love your wives. Why does he say that? Because that's an act of submission. To put someone else's interests so much above your own is an act of self-submission. Uh, children, obey your parents. That's a definite act of submission. Fathers, don't provoke your children. Servants, obey your earthly masters. Masters, treat your servants well. That's an outline of that little passage. And all I'm trying to say to you there is, some people just read the submit to one another out of reverence for Christ and stop there. And that's good in the sense that that's true for all of us but he's going to give some specific ideas. It doesn't say, fathers, submit yourselves to your children and give them all the candy that they want. It doesn't say that, does it? It wouldn't make sense anyway. What I'm saying to you is the rest of this, these are examples of how we as Christ followers are gonna live out our life to demonstrate our willing submission to one another, which is our way of being filled with the Spirit. Okay, I don't know if this outline is as cool to you as it is to me, but it is, okay? <laughs> In other words, when you read the text, let's let the text say what it wants to say. That's what it wants to say. These are examples of living, uh, being filled with the Spirit, or let me put it another way, living a Spirit-led life. Not a Terry-led life, a Spirit-led life. So these are examples, and we're just gonna talk about the wives and husbands uh, a little bit more. Now let's go back and let's just start talking about gender in general. And we can talk about any questions you want because gender means way more now than it did, uh, uh, oh, even 20 years ago. And I'll explain to you why. This is really interesting. But first, the fundamental idea of gender comes from before the fall of humanity. God said, let us make man humanity in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the whole earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. There's a pretty little rhythm to this in Hebrew, and it's a pretty little threesome, which means it's real important. God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is the God-ordained good creation. Now that's hard to understand. If you look at all the world since the fall and you say, who in the world decided to create men and women different? I mean, this is the source of so much difficulty, but it wasn't designed that way, was it? And in fact, it was the plan from the very beginning. My point to you is that men and women are essential to God's purpose in the world. This isn't something he thought up as a plan B. Oh my gosh, the Garden of Eden didn't work out. I'm going to have to invent marriage now. And you guys are just going to have to fight your way through it. No, that's not what this is. This is plan A. And so there's a reason for it. So a couple of obvious, uh, just obvious things to say about this. Men and women were created equal in the sight of God, equal in the image of God, but not the same as one another. That sounds like that ought to be the most obvious thing in the world, but you could probably get canceled for that today. So don't tweet that. You'll probably get in all kinds of trouble. But that's what this text is saying. Created equally in the image of God and not the same. The other thing you see 
is that they, that man and woman are created to be teammates, not opponents. I mean, think about that. You get man and woman and think Adam and Eve in the garden. He puts them in there and says, you're on the same team. Some of this you don't feel like you ought to need to say, but if you look around at our world, you go, we gotta remember some basic truths here. They were together about the same business. They were not opponents. Didn't, Adam didn't say, there is, no, nah, never mind, I'm not gonna go there, but there is some, some interesting, uh, not inspired uh, writings that talk about Adam and Eve having arguments in the garden. But uh, that to me is uh, just a throwback. It's like, well, we have arguments here, I'll bet they argued too. But they are teammates, not opponents with each other. And then thirdly, that this way of creating us, men and women cannot complete God's purpose individually. Now, I don't mean that to say, please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying everybody needs to get married. I'm not talking about that level. I'm talking about the idea of the fact that we are different. Men and women are created different. That's essential. That was part of the plan. And that means it's necessary to the plan. And so if you are a misogynist, you just don't like women in general, or if you just don't like men in general, that's not a very biblical approach. We actually need each other to complete God's purpose. So that's the fundamental basis for Gender, teammates, not opponents. So back to our text. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. One observation I would make about this is, this was very countercultural in the time. In fact, everything in this. He is upsetting. Why is he writing about it? He doesn't write things and says, hey, by the way, as far as marriage, uh, do what everybody else does. No. He doesn't write that. You don't have to write that. He's writing this. In fact, he's using a lot of words to write this because he says, okay, this is gonna be a rub with everybody else in your world. Whatever your culture is, what I'm about to tell you, because God's into peace, he's not into power. And every relationship is fundamentally, you dig deep enough and there's control issues there. In, in our cultural world, given where that world comes from, that's not true with God. He said, so I need to go into this in a little detail because it's going to be countercultural, and it was. It's still countercultural, but for exactly the opposite reason. In those days, it, nobody, every, in those days, the idea was women obey your husbands because you are property. Now, some cultures varied a little bit about how many rights women had or other, but big picture, historically in that era, that was, if that was offensive, it was offensive because he didn't use the word obey. But the really offensive part is husbands, you have to love your wives. In the Roman world, marrying somebody because you loved them was a very stupidly foreign idea to them. Marrying somebody was all about getting ahead in the world, right? Or having kids to work on the fire. It was something utilitarian. Love was not the point. But the really obnoxious thing about this is that husband had any obligation to their wife at all. So that was very counter, all I'm saying is that was countercultural. Paul knows it's gonna be countercultural. God knows it's gonna be countercultural forever because he's saying you're teammates, you're not opponents. 
Now, fast forward, nobody minds husbands loving their wives. In fact, do more laundry. Pick up after yourself. How many times have I told you not to put your sweaty socks there? Now, everybody's good with that part. Nobody likes the other part. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. So it's countercultural there. It's always going to be countercultural. And that's my only point about this. I mean, I'm not, I'm not gonna spend a lot of time talking about this. It's always going to be countercultural. Always has been, always will be. Why? Fundamentally because this is God's way of creating harmony, not the world's way of establishing control. And control works both ways. It worked both ways after the fall, it works both ways now. But my point is, God has a different purpose, so it's going to be countercultural, and it's going to be countercultural in every age. You're going to see this again in Colossians, a little bit different language, but what I want to emphasize is notice the same verb submit yourselves. This is that voluntary submission. This is optional. God didn't say, obey, do it, or I shall smite thee. But if you want to partake of the nature of Christ, submit yourselves. Men, you want to partake of the nature of Christ? Love your wife in a self-sacrificial way. These are both attributes of Jesus Christ. So you'll see the same thing here. Uh, you'll talk about servants, etc. We'll talk about that in social justice. Peter. Same thing, this isn't just a Paul thing. Sometimes Paul gets labeled as a misogynist, he doesn't like women, and so he puts in all these awful 21st century things that we don't like, right? That's not the case, Peter says the same things. Likewise, wives, same verb. Be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of your wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct. And he goes in to a great deal of what this kind of Christ-like attitude can do in a family. And you've probably known families where that is true. So the idea, and the point that I want to make in that is it is countercultural because it's going after a different purpose. It's not about control. It's about harmony. It's about peace. But there's even a little bit more to it than that. God doesn't just want harmonious marriages, as good as that is. God isn't just saying each one of you as Christ followers, whether you're male, female, makes no difference. You all bear the image of God. You've all died to self and you have now put on Christ. He says, I want each of you to partake of the nature of Jesus Christ. And so, he says, consequently, you will be a witness to the culture around you because the basis of your relationship, and this isn't just marriage, but that's what we're talking about. The basis of your relationship won't be who's hierarchical, who's more important, who's got more power, who's got more leverage, who's in control in this relationship. Your very self-submitting, sacrificial, loving way you deal with each other is a witness to the rest of the culture. But it's also part of God's redemptive plan. So what do I mean by that? Your marriage, your, and again, this isn't just about marriage, your relationship with other believers, but your marriage is not just do it this way, 
because that clothes yourself with the nature of Jesus Christ and it will make for a harmonious marriage. That's true. But that's not the only truth in this. You see, husbands need to learn to love someone sacrificially. Does that make sense? Why? What was the fundamental reason for the fall of humanity? I put self over God. Satan says what? You know, God doesn't want you to eat that because he knows when you do, you will become like God. And so Adam and Eve go, well, obey God or become like God. I'm an ambitious person. I think I want to be God. And so that sin is fundamentally putting self before God. And then Adam compounds it and puts self before Eve. And it just goes downhill from there, doesn't it? So what is this doing? In addition to clothing yourself with Christ, okay, that's all true. And it will create peace and harmony because you let go of power. Christ is not about power. He has all the power, but he doesn't use the power. Philippians 2, even though he was equal, I'm paraphrasing, even though he was equal in power with God, he did not consider that something to hold on to, but instead he emptied himself and humbled himself and took on the form of a servant, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's Philippians 2, 1 through 11. What does that tell you about Jesus Christ? Oh my gosh. That is not somebody who's interested in power. That's someone who is much more interested in sacrificial love and someone who's in self-submission, submitting himself for your sake and mine, even when we were enemies. It's amazing. So it's true that clothing ourselves in Christ will lead to good marriages, but beyond that, if you want to think about what's it going to take for you and for me to overcome the built-in, the original sin, the fallen nature, whatever your theology is, makes no difference to me. We all have a bent towards sin, and you know what that bent is? Self-centeredness. We all want to do it. Oh, now it's easy to explain why cultural relationships are built on power, isn't it? Because every little sinner running around out there, me included, before I encounter Jesus Christ, is interested in me more than you. If you ask people, everybody's view of the world is fundamentally, unless they're pathological, everybody's view of the world is fundamentally, this is my story and you get to be in it. If there are any Academy Awards here, I will be taking them, right? We have a self-centered view of our life and of our world. So think about it this way also. God says, I know you can't do that by yourself. And that's why, Ephesians 1.13, when you placed your trust in God, he gave you his very spirit as a down payment of what the transformation will be done inside you. And guess what one of those transformations is? The destruction of our self-centeredness. Think about Luke chapter 9. If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny his self. Take up his cross, meaning don't just deny yourself, nail it to the cross, kill it, and follow me. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, as many as you were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. 
our old self has been crucified with Christ. So this idea of living with each other with self-submission and in marriages with sacrificial love and self-submission, this idea of being filled with the Spirit, what do you think God's doing with this? Well, it will make for a more harmonious marriage, but it isn't all about you and me. He's got bigger plans than that. This is all about redeeming us and getting us back to the situation in the garden. Peace and harmony, not power. Does that make sense? Is that too philosophical? Because what I want you to see is, then how do I apply it? Do this. I mean, it's that simple. Just do that. In other words, submit yourselves. Love sacrificially. Do what God says. What will that do? It will make me more like Christ, and as a byproduct, we will live more harmoniously together, won't we? And in our marriages, we'll live more harmoniously. But even more important than that, if we're gonna turn into the image of Jesus Christ, we need to learn self-submission, and we need to learn sacrificial love, don't we? That's why this is the basis for all of the social relationships in the kingdom. It doesn't say you should do your best to be in charge. That's the world's way of going about it. But if you wanna get harmony, then clothe yourself with Christ and trust the spirit to eventually put yourself to death. Marriage, I've decided, this is an opinion. I think marriage was God's really wise plan to make us holy. We think marriage is to make us happy. And I'm not saying there won't be happiness. When a friend of mine once said, came up to me, we were on a business trip together, and he said, my wife and I have been married for five wonderful years. And I said, that's, that's amazing that you love your wife that much, but you know, Steve, you've been married for 30 years. And he goes, I know, but we've been married for five wonderful years. And I thought, okay, there you go. My point is, you will be happy, but the purpose of marriage is way bigger than that. It's to make us holy. And part of that is we need to learn to submit ourselves to someone who doesn't deserve it. Now, I'm not casting any aspersion on your husband or your wife. I'm simply saying that why do we submit ourselves out of reverence for Christ? If you can learn to submit yourself to someone who isn't worthy enough for it, you start to look like Jesus Christ. You start to love your wife as Christ loved the church, and you say, well, she's good. She's not that good, you know? It's No. Now you begin to understand the nature of Christ, that your love doesn't have anything to do with how she's behaving at the moment. It has everything to do with about Christ. So this makes sense? This is countercultural in any time, in any culture, because... It's not based on power. Okay, we need to talk about what the Bible is not saying. So I wanna get a little more practical. There are a number of things that the Bible is not saying. And now you understand this, these will be obvious. This is first of all, not talking about all men and all women. I mean, even the church has, in the past, has mirrored the culture to the extent that men should have authority over women. That's not what this passage says. Now, there are other questions I'm not addressing here that the scripture does, but that's not what this is talking about. It's talking about 
your marriage with your husband. As far as what you and I owe any other believer, male or female, is a tendency to submit ourselves out of reverence for Christ. Live at peace with each other. I'm not demanding my rights, or by the way, you need to obey me. No, we owe each other submitting ourselves out of reverence for Christ. But as far as the wives submit yourselves to your husband, husbands love your wives like Christ loved the church, that's one husband, one wife. That's not all men, that's not all women. And I know that hasn't, that's been taught that way before, but that's obviously not what this is talking about. Secondly, it couldn't be farther from talking about oppression and authoritarianism. That is completely opposite of what this is about. In other words, the culture is about authoritarianism and control and power. Christ relationships are about sacrificial love and submitting yourself. There's nowhere in there that it says, husbands, make all the decisions and, and boss your wife around. There's nowhere in here that it says, wives, nag your husbands to death. You can get them to do anything if you say it enough. That's true. But my point is, that's not what this is talking about. It, there, it couldn't be further away. Have Christian people said that before? Yeah, they've said that before. But that's not what this is. I mean, once you understand this, you realize that's obvious, isn't it? It can't be about that. Men are better than women. What in the world would you get that out of this passage? It has nothing to do with this passage. You can't get it out of creation because we're created equally in the image of God, both necessary for God's purposes. I don't know where you get that. I know exactly where that comes from. That is very much a cultural power idea. Is you gotta have, when you ask for two people, you gotta say, well, who's most important? Who's in charge? Who's in control? Christians, that's not the question we ask. I mean, that's just not our question. Don't know, don't care, doesn't really fit my paradigm, but it does fit the world's paradigm. Somebody has to be in charge. And traditionally, what we call the patriarchy, patriarchy is not a Christian idea, that's a cultural idea. It comes from the world of power and control. And of course there's gonna be a patriarchy. You know why there's gonna be a patriarchy? Because men are better killers. Seriously, of course there's gonna be a patriarchy through most of human history outside Christ. Of course, I'm not saying it's right, I'm not saying it's good, but there was gonna be some kind of archy, right? And it's not all men and all women. Guess what? There's going to be dictators. There's gonna be a handful of people who are killing all the other people. There's always gonna be some kind of an archy in the world because they're all about power. That's not an idea that goes anywhere near Christian relationships. Today, you take this one step further, and this is interesting, is what traditionally when we talk about gender roles and gender relationships, we're talking about secular ideas which are based on power, and I really want you to think about that. You dig deep enough, you'll always find control issues. Christian ideas that are always gonna be countercultural because power is not the issue. It's all about submit yourself voluntarily, voluntarily emulate Christ and love your, your wife like he loved the church. It's not, there's no power in this. There's transformation inside this idea. But 
the cultural idea of control used to be centered around uh, the patriarchy, men ordering their wives around. Then you have feminism and it's like, we won't stand for this anymore, we're better than you anyway, okay? Typical cultural idea, I make no comment on what's right, what's wrong, it's all wrong. It's not Christ-like, so it can't be right. And it's just, a, it's a power game, right? And I know there are horrible things that happen in the world, but they're both power games. But it's taken one step further. Last time I taught on gender roles, that was the extent of it. Now, power and control has taken one more step. It's not about my power over you as a husband or my power over you as a wife. It's my power over nature. Do you understand? I now not only decide who's in charge in this marriage, I decide what a male and a female is. It's the same game. It's just going a little further. Do you understand? Don't think that the current gender issues just popped up out of nowhere. It is the inevitable result of that power ideology. Not only do I want power over you, I want power over nature because I want to be God. Oh my goodness, where have I heard that story before? That's humanity replaying the fall. You're gonna see that everywhere you look. We want power over weather, we want power over the oceans, we want power over global warming or global cooling. I don't know, we need to do something, but I don't know which it is. But bottom line is we, not only do we want power over each other, we now want power over the world as well. And so the gender roles used to just be talking about men and women, now it's talking about what is a man and what is a woman. But it's the same game, it's all about control. Christian world, not that way. And to sum it up, I would say this, is in these pictures, obviously the one on the right is an ultimate idea of a culture of control. The two on the left are more common in our lives and that is a culture of competition instead of, I'm gonna use a word here that may be loaded for some of you, but I simply mean it to mean what it means. We are not competing, we are complementary. We are not opponents, we are teammates. We were made to work together, all of us, not just in a relationship. God's plan needs all the women that follow Christ and all the men that follow Christ. So we are teammates, not opponents. We are complementary. we are not competitors. Our world sees it, of course our world sees it as competition. You pick up the paper and everything you see is about somebody competing with someone else. And that's why this is so countercultural. Is, is when Paul writes this about these relationships, you're just gonna see more and more of this. It's gonna sound really weird if you think like the world thinks because that is radically different. And it is radically different, okay? So, for us, I don't want you to see this, and the reason I like to teach it this way, and I hope it's effective, because I want you to think about it. It's not just about following a rule. Husbands, you better love your wives like Christ loved the church, and if you don't, I will come and smite you. Women, you better submit yourselves to your husband. I don't care how stupid he is. You must submit yourself to your husband. Yeah, it's not about the rules. It's all about what God is trying to do. Everything in here is voluntary. It says, did Christ say God made me die on a cross for you? 
No, he said, I lay down my life voluntarily because I love you. Start doing that. Start doing that, because that's what he's talking about here, okay? That obviously applies to more than marriage, but this is what's gonna be most countercultural. Nobody cares if you as a group of believers, I mean, it's, no, it's not yet unpopular for you to care for one another and submit to one another and take care of one another. It may be one day, but marriage relationship is, parent relationship is, and power relationships in business, which is what we're gonna talk about with social justice is. Okay, so next time, so think about that and think about what that means and take it out of the realm of, uh, first of all, if you're having difficulty in your relationships, you can't fix the other person. You can pray for the other person, you can't fix them, but you can look inside and say, to what extent am I playing a power game? Because at the end of the day, all I know is, I'm not gonna wag my finger at my wife and say, you're not submitting yourself out of reverence for Christ. I'm gonna say to myself, are you loving sacrificially like Christ loved the church? Because that's what I'm gonna be held responsible for. And so we need to look in ourselves and say, to what extent has that whole control thing seeped in to our relationships? Whether it's with each other, it's in our marriages, it's in our friendships, whatever. Perhaps just as controversial today is the idea of Christians and social justice. And a lot of what I've talked to you about today, you don't, when I say the world and the secular society, you're gonna hear a lot of that in the church too. And the only conclusion I can draw to that is there's a lot of secular-minded thinking in the church. But we just need to do what the Bible says. And Paul is saying, this is what Christ followers look like. Social justice, church has a lot to say about social justice, and a lot of it is not particularly biblical. What the world has to say about social justice isn't even slightly biblical, but what does God expect of you and me when it comes to justly treating one another? And that's what we're gonna talk about next time. This week, work on your marriages. How do you work on your marriage? Well, of course, you need to rebuke your wife. No, you need to do what God told you to do. Okay, I'll see you guys next time.